May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, establish, perfect, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, YouTube, Twitter, Google, ESPN, most of the networks, they've all for some time had a trending now section on them. Usually it's a crawler on the bottom of the screen, trending now. And it's some earth-shattering news about the Kardashians or some such. Trends themselves are apparently still trending because I was rather surprised, but I shouldn't have been, to find that Lowe's has jumped on board. Lowe's now lists certain products as trending. This initially surprised me because I find it rather surprising that two-by-fours and J-Trim can be trending. Hmm. Why would anyone hop out and buy a sheet of plywood because that was trending. Lowe's is evidently trying to play on two basic human needs or vulnerabilities. The need to fit in. So if it's trending, I should get in on that. And the fear of missing out. If it's trending, it must be a good deal. I have to get some of them. Evidently, the marketing people at Lowe's figure that if some of your neighbors are out there buying green shutters and gothic porch sconces, you'll feel compelled to run out and pick up a few for yourselves. Trends are obviously important to our society for a variety of different reasons, of course. But Christians, too, ought to be intensely concerned with trends. And we're not talking about fashion trends or what's flying off the shelves at Lowe's, but trends in ourselves. And we need to examine those trends honestly. Almost nothing in a Christian's life gets corrected all at once. That's why you've often probably heard us talk about how are things going rather than, is this problem solved? Because almost nothing in a sin-broken world gets solved all at once, just as almost no decline into unbelief happens instantly because of a single event or a single sin. It's almost always this process. And so we need to learn to identify the direction of that trend in our lives. In other words, the question isn't always, is this problem solved? We wish it were. But usually the best that we can hope for is, are things getting better or are they getting worse? Because if they're getting better, that's the right course. And often that's all that we as human beings need to go on, to continue the struggle. Now, you can plug things from your own life into this. Is my walk with my Lord getting better or getting worse? Growing stronger or getting weaker? 
Is my relationship with my spouse or my children or whatever in my life, is it getting better or getting worse? Because again, in a sin-broken world, it's never going to be perfect, ever. We should stop even expecting that or looking for that. Paul talked about this in his letter to the Philippians. He put it this way, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And in many other places, he talked about that process, that growth that's necessary in a Christian's life. And he says, not that I've already attained, not that I'm already there, but the process, the struggle, the upward trajectory. So it is this morning that we're going to talk about trends in our lives. And again, not which monkey wrench or deck chair is flying off the shelves and lows, but what it is that's happening in our lives. What's going on in our lives and what is the trajectory or the trend? Our text for this morning speech of, speaks of such things, but again, as with most of these, you have to look carefully to identify the trend identified in our text, which is found in the third chapter of the book of Hebrews. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is God's word. May God the Holy Spirit lead you to hear, accept, believe these words as though God the Holy Spirit himself were standing in front of you, speaking these words directly to you personally. To that end, we pray. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. So did you pick out the trend identified in our text for this morning? Again, this is why we study God's word rather than just read it and move on. Because we gain through study. So if you look back to verses 12 and 13, the trend is identified with these words, Take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
Again, we refer to this as a trend because losing a Christian faith, falling away, in my experience, never happens all at once. It's always the culmination of a downward trend. And you can see that in your lives. By God's grace, you haven't fallen away. But you can identify times in your life when you were on that downward trajectory, when things weren't improving, they were getting worse. And in a strange quirk of human nature, you could even maybe recognize that, but you just didn't do anything about it. This is what happens. It's the loss comes, the fall comes by a pattern of bad choices, by, by developing a certain comfort level with sin, allowing it to live in our hearts and lives, by a gradual conformity to the world around us. That's the trend our text calls on us to search out in our own personal lives. And interestingly, it tells us in the lives of our fellow Christians, exhorting one another. Obviously, this is worthy of our attention because the downside couldn't be worse, the upside couldn't be greater. So, is this going to be an easy process? Nope. Because we've got a whole world of evil working against us here. A whole world, the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh working against us. And our text identifies the first challenge because it says, it, it speaks of the deceitfulness of sin. Now, it's bad enough when you take deceitfulness in the way we usually understand the word. Deceitful meaning it obscures the truth so we don't always know what's right and wrong. But an interesting fact about that word translated as deceitfulness, it can also at times be translated as pleasantness. And that's the problem, isn't it? That's a big problem. Because we acknowledge that sin is often pleasant. It's often pleasing to that beast, that old Adam within us. Pick a sin, any sin, and you probably can identify an element of pleasantness about it. Again, according to our sinful old Adam. Gossip, for example. Gossip, for whatever reason, is pleasant to us in an evil sort of way. We, for some reason, like to hear bad stuff about other people, and we like to share it. You know how your ears perk up when somebody says, oh, you're not going to believe it's own? <gasps> what? There is a wicked evil in connection with that. And yet somehow we just, mm, well, yeah, but I still want to hear it. What is it? And then we're good at rationalizations. I only want to hear it to help. <laughs> no, you don't. Experts tell us that this is because when we hear bad things about others, we feel better about ourselves. There's another element here. Old Adam and us love sin loves to hear about sin in others because we feel then justified or less defensive 
about sin in our own lives. We're also left weaker when we hear about sin in others and therefore more vulnerable. So pick a sin, any sin, and you'll typically find pleasure behind it. Stealing gives us pleasure of ownership, even if it's tainted ownership. Sexual sins, carnal gratification. Harming your neighbor's body gives us a feeling of, I got revenge and a feeling of superiority. You get the point. There's a pleasantness in sin that's going to work against us in this process to identify the trend and counter it, to correct that trend in our lives, to drive sin from our world. Because that old Adam is a pleasure hog. It's a brute, nasty, loathsome beast that loves pleasure regardless of the consequences and therefore will offer a whole world of excuses and rationalizations as to why this sin, in my particular case, is acceptable. Another thing that works against us is the fact that we can label sins as innocuous and relatively harmless and therefore invite them in and offer them residency in our hearts because they're not that bad. It's the sin graded on the curve deal. and You've done it. You've experienced it. Well, gossip can't be that bad after all. I, I haven't actually done that or I haven't murdered anyone so it can't be that bad. That tendency we have to grade sin on the curve it's not as bad as that. Therefore, I may allow sinful thoughts to remain in my heart, but it's no big deal because I don't act on them. I'm not always completely truthful, but I never lie about important things. Now, just in case, as Christians, we feel like we're immune from this, Take a look at the examples in our text. That's why they're there. And God the Holy Spirit is masterful at giving us examples that apply if we allow them. So our text talks about those who fell away and were lost between the time when Moses led them out of Egypt and they entered or stood at the, at the entrance to the promised land. Who were those people? They're the children of Israel, the chosen people of God. Now, what about those people is remarkable. Why would God use them as examples? These were people who, for a time, at least had enough faith to paint their doorposts with blood, or they would have been killed during the tenth plague, the Passover. So these were people that, at least for a time, believed. But more than that, this was a people that saw with their eyes, heard with their ears, tasted the Lord's goodness. They saw Him or manifestations of Him. They witnessed the plagues and their preservation from the plagues. They saw the miracle of looting at God's command, the Egyptian people. The slave went and asked their master, hey, can I have your gold and silver? Yeah, here, sure, take it. That doesn't happen but they saw it. 
And then they escaped, and they saw the Red Sea part, and they crossed through on dry land, and then they saw the entire indefatigable Egyptian army wiped out. And then they tasted the miracles of the manna. They saw the water flowing from the rock. They saw with their eyes the, the cloudy pillar that led them by day and the pillar of fire that led them by night. They heard God's voice at Sinai. They experienced God. And not one of the adults, say Joshua, Caleb, and Moses, entered the promised land. Every adult. 20 and over, was killed in the intervening 40 years. Why? Why? These were God's people that had, again, personal experience with God. This should cause us to sit up and take notice because if these people fell away, you and I should know that the danger is real and real to us. So what happened? That's what we should ask. What happened to these people that saw God, experienced Him, heard His voice. The first, apparently it started with sin. In some cases, a lack of contentment. In others, a lack of trust. They didn't trust God. He freed them from Egypt, allowed them to plunder the Egyptians without firing a single shot or any controversy. But then when they got to the edge of the Red Sea and saw the Egyptian army, what did they want? I want to go back. You led us out here to be slaughtered, to be killed in the wilderness. Shame on you, Moses. We had it pretty good back there in that slavery when we were ordered to kill all of our children. We had it pretty good. They didn't trust God to deliver them. Then God delivered them. So they get into the wilderness, and we don't have enough food to eat, so God gives them food. We hate this food. We want meat. God gives them meat. We're tired of this meat and this food. And now we're, we're dying of thirst. So God makes the water flow from the rock. Time after time after time, they just aren't satisfied or don't trust that God has their best interests in mind. Then finally they get to the edge of the promised land and they don't trust that God can defeat these people for them. They don't trust what God said. I'll give you this land. Go in and take it. They allowed sin, that sin and others, to remain in their hearts and it culminated with the worship of false gods. And God said, enough. You're done. Not one of you will enter the promised land except Joshua, Caleb, those two spies that went in and said, oh, People are powerful. The land is great. This is awesome. God is going to give it to us. He said he would. And Moses. Moses didn't even enter. So, does this apply to us? Of course it does. If these people got into this trend which resulted in the loss of their faith, we need to sit up and take notice. happens, doesn't it? People are running so well, you probably know these in your lives, they have what appears to be a strong Christian faith, and then they allow things into their lives, into their hearts, that 
deteriorates, diminishes, and eventually destroys through that downward trend, saving faith so that they're lost. See, there's a difference, isn't there, between running and finishing? So who won the Super Bowl last year? Tampa Bay. I know you don't care. Who was ahead at halftime? Who was ahead in the fourth quarter? Well, I don't know. doesn't matter. Right. Well, none of it matters, but you get the point. Running isn't the same as finishing. So how can we know, as Christians, that we're not running in vain, Paul's term for it, that we're just going through the motions and that we're never going to get to the finish line? Remaining in that word is again the key, isn't it? It's that means God gave us not just to convert, but to strengthen and preserve. That's why he told us in the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Why? Because it works. Just do it. Just as running alongside a lake doesn't quench your thirst, so the proximity to God's word doesn't fill you with what you need. So part of identifying trends is, am I going through the motions? Or am I really paying attention? It, even beginning with little children, am I just going to Sunday school or confirmation or whatever because mom and dad make me go and I'll suffer through it for a while and then I'll get to not go? That doesn't help. So again, proximity to the word isn't the solution. Going to church on Sunday doesn't do us any good if we just, okay, well, it's something I got to do and I'll sleep through and I'll, I won't work at trying to apply opening our Bibles and just mindlessly reading, there may be some value, but far greater value is tearing that word apart and applying it individually. But that takes work. And we don't often like it. The old Adamantist doesn't like it, not only because it takes work, but because it's difficult. It's sometimes embarrassing to us, even though nobody knows, because I'm condemned by what I read here. I'm not following this. I have allowed this sin in my life, and it is deteriorating my Christian faith. But here's the secret that God reveals to us. Sin can only do its destructive work in our hearts if we allow it to. Because Jesus conquered sin. He broke the bonds of slavery that held us to sin, Satan, and eternal destruction. They cannot have any power over us unless we allow it. And it's that word that fixes the problem. It's that word that serves as the mirror of the law. This is God's will, but then I see myself. That's different. That's not what God wants in my life. But again, that careful study, that personal application of God's Word. Understand something, by the way, about this whole process. 
What we're talking about here is not the relationship between you and your pastor. It's not the relationship between you and your spouse. Not the relationship between you and your parents. It's a relationship between you and your God. This is about you only. It's not about anybody else. So can you see how foolish it would be, how pointless, how stupid to pretend here? To somehow do what's necessary for outward appearances? You shouldn't care about my opinion. You shouldn't care about others' opinions. It's God in your relationship with Him that counts. Are you living, acting contrary to God's will? Because He sees. There's no hiding it from Him. He may as well acknowledge it if you are and use the strength He offers to correct that trend. And that, fellow Christians, is the great trend of our day inside and outside of the church, isn't it? The trend is no longer to condemn sin as sin. The trend is to coddle sin, to justify it, to defend it, even to embrace it, and some even now to champion it, to celebrate it, to promote it. Hear the words of our text. Let that old Adam hear those words of our text. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And this brings us finally to the best part of this or any text. What is that voice? True, we need to take measures to beat our old Adam into submission, to acknowledge downward trends, to acknowledge sin in our lives and to drive it out. But what does God's voice say to us? Relax, be of good cheer. I paid for that sin. You're not on your own. I hold you in my hand. Now when you pray to me for something, you shouldn't expect that you play no role. It's the power of my word, yes, but you do. So it's not you trying to earn your forgiveness, it's you making use of the power I placed at your disposal when you come to me in word and sacrament. Because sin, its power over you, I broke it. I carried every one of your sins to the cross. I paid for it. God, my Father, declared you, along with the rest of the world, to be not guilty of sin, the debt having been paid. The voice that Jesus, with which Jesus calls to us is one of love, forgiveness, reconciliation. But he knows that within us is that terrible power to harden our hearts, to stop our ears, to refuse to hear our God. To listen instead to those who would pervert the gospel, the means by which we are saved, which is not by doing, but through faith alone in Jesus. Who would pervert that into believing, having you believe that there's something I can do now. Now, I'm a little worried about these trends in my life, so I need to do something, and then I'll be what? 
There is an answer, and there's a wrong answer. I'll be more acceptable to God? No. I'll be able to thank Him better, more accurately, more acceptably with my life. Yes. I will, by the power of that word, avoid these trends, correct them. Yes. Those things God promised. For we have come to share in Christ, our text says, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What was that original confidence? I can't pay God for my sins, not one. On my own, I'll not only reject Him, I'll return to that slavery of sin. I'm no better than the Egyptians in and of myself. Whenever something doesn't go right, I have that same idea, that same thing comes into my heart and my mind. Oh, but that looks so good. The slavery that I was under before sin because then I got to eat of the meat of the flesh pots of Egypt. I got to have all that pleasantness of sin. That's that animal in us. Again, that untamable brute beast that loves evil. God says, there was nothing good in you, but I loved you enough to send my son. Even now, when you see sin in, my, in your lives, be of good cheer, because I don't. Because I brought you to faith. Because I've preserved that faith. I see only the perfection of Jesus in you. You are forgiven. You are my child. I love you. And I love you despite the fact that you don't hide anything from me. I see you as you are. It's hard for us to accept sometimes, isn't it, that anybody could really know us and still love us? God does, intimately. So thank your God by identifying the trends. You will not earn his love. You will not save yourself. But it is God's will for us. God, grant us then the joy of forgiveness through faith in Jesus alone. And then grant us also the wisdom, the tenacity to thank him by identifying and rooting from our hearts all that is displeasing to him. Amen.